Welcome to the historic Ocean House, a luxurious hotel that pays homage to New England's golden age of hospitality. With timeless elegance and renewed civility, this treasured resort is the setting for our special broadcast of the Ocean House Author Series. Each program features nationally best-selling and award-winning authors in a salon-style conversation, hosted by Ocean House owner, actress, and best-selling author, Deborah Goodrich-Royce. You'll hear fascinating conversations with exceptional authors like Chloe Milos, Avery Carpenter, Patty Callahan-Henry, Victoria Christopher-Murray, Kitty Curick, and more. WCRI is pleased to partner with the Ocean House to present this ongoing series, which brings you the best and the brightest of the literary world. Now, let's take you to the Ocean House. Katie Couric is an award-winning journalist and the number one New York Times best-selling author of her memoir, Going There, which was published in October 2021. She's also a co-founder of Stand Up to Cancer. In 2017, she founded Katie Couric Media, which has developed a number of media projects, including a daily newsletter, a podcast, digital video series, and several documentaries. You can find all of those at katiecouric.com. Katie was the first woman to solo anchor a network evening newscast serving as anchor and managing editor of the CBS Evening News from 2006 to 2011, following 15 years as co-anchor of NBC's Today Show. She has won a DuPont Columbia, a Peabody, two Edward R. Murrows, a Walter Cronkite Award, and multiple Emmys. She was twice named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People and was a Glamour Magazine Woman of the Year three times. She has also received numerous awards for her cancer advocacy work. <laughs> Welcome, Katie. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you. Thank you. Katie will be in conversation tonight with Deborah Goodrich Royce. Deborah's thrillers examine puzzles of identity. Reef Road hit Publishers Weekly's bestseller list, Good Morning America's top 15 list, and was an Indie Next pick by the American Booksellers Association for January 2023. Ruby Falls won the Zibby Award for Best Plot Twist in 2021, and Finding Mrs. Ford was hailed by Forbes, Book Riot, and Good Morning America's Best of list in 2019. She began as an actress on All My Children and in multiple films before transitioning to the role of story editor at Miramax Films, developing Emma and early versions of Chicago and A Wrinkle in Time. With her husband Chuck, Deborah restored the Avon Theater, the Ocean House Hotel, Deer Mountain Inn, United Theater, and numerous Main Street revitalization projects in Rhode Island and the Catskills. Anne holds a bachelor's degree in modern foreign languages and an honorary doctor of humane letters from Lake Erie College. Katie and Deborah will now discuss Katie's memoir, Going There. And now, without any further ado, please join me in welcoming Katie Couric and Deborah Goodrich Royce. Thank you, Katie, for being here. But I want to shout out to the woman who made this all happen, Lorette Kittle. Where are you? <laughs> we, uh, there are many of us tonight wearing these lovely tops and dresses and whatever you can imagine, created by Lorette for her company, Walker & Wade. So they're available here in the gift shop. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Katie, for being here. I am. I am so excited. I loved your book, and oh, I, I just have to say that. So I'm going to start with a weird question. Okay. Why, <laughs> you, you know, we're generationally the same, so you're pretty young. Why would you write a memoir now? Well, I'm not that young, but thank you. Um, you know, I'm 66, and I wanted to write my life story before, honestly, while I could still remember it. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> 
And I felt like I was at a point in my career where I was starting my own company. I had sort of all the obligations of working for major networks behind me. I could talk freely and candidly about my experiences. And um, I was just, I just thought while people, you know, still knew who I was, <laughs> that it would be a good idea to write it. So that was really the, the reason for the timing. No, I get that because there is that fine line where you still have currency in the world, mm -hmm. and but you, you know there you have a little bit of breadth of experience. So the title, which of course is the perfect double entendre, going there. So your idea was it always the title? Was it did it come like in one of those kitchen sink sessions that we used to do at Miramax with a bajillion titles? How did you come up with it? I mean, it was sort of a last minute title. I always wanted to call the book Moxie because my dad used to say that I had Moxie. I love the word. It means sort of spirited determination. I think it actually really it described my personality really well. I like the way the word looked because the X would be in the middle. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know, I just think thought it was a really fun title, but the editors at uh, Little Brown did not agree, and they thought the word was too old-fashioned. It is the name of a soft drink, I think. But anyway, um, so I, I, I honestly, I couldn't think of anything. And so we sort of tried a bunch of different titles on for size, and we finally ended up with Going There, which as a double entendre, sort of to me, it suggested I had to go a lot of places, and, and of course, the, the real, I think, double entendre that a lot of people interpreted from the title was that I really did go there. Um, and my husband had all sorts of funny ideas for the title. I forget, like, I, we, we had thought of my late husband used to say I was born on a sunny day, but that was sort of like, very Hallmark party. And, and uh, I think, uh, you know, I, I don't know. My husband's funny. Like he think he thought I should title it something like "I Hate Everyone," and, <laughs> and uh, which I don't. Just some people, and uh, and so you know, honestly, we just needed something, and I ended up with going there. I don't love the title, truth be told, but no. it's it you know it works well enough. I think the thing I mentioned about title meetings at a film company. So I was at Miramax in the 90s. We're going to talk about your time with Matt Lauer and mine with Harvey Weinstein. We're going to go there. <laughs> but at Miramax and all film companies, when you're like having these kitchen sink title meetings, you might take something like going there, going where, who's going, I went, she went, they went. So you, you just do theme and variation for right. page after page yeah. till you can't even see anymore. So a memoir. You include stuff. You exclude stuff. How do you, I mean, so Alice McDermott, who's an incredible writer, she's a novelist, but she's written a book recently on writing. It's called What About the Baby? And she talks about the difference between fiction and nonfiction. And she says in nonfiction, you're kind of compelled to include everything, whereas in fiction, the possibilities are so limitless, it's the writer's job to completely curtail what he or she is including. So how did you include enough of your life to feel like, because it really does feel like we're, we're going down the yellow brick road with you. Well, I think, you know, when you have a career and you do for a living what I did for so many years and continue to do, you 
you know, gosh, I've interviewed so many people. I've done so many interviews. I've had so many life experiences. And I think I wanted to balance it between my professional life and my personal life because, you know, I think people form these parasocial relationships when they watch someone on morning television. You really feel like you get to know them. I think even more so because I think nowadays uh, there's a lot more sharing than even I did. Like, when I got my job at the Today Show, Jane Polly said, don't talk about your kids. Protect them, keep their privacy. And I really took what she said to heart. You know, I would mention if we were doing an interview about, you know, temper tantrums or the terrible twos, I might say, oh yeah, Ellie did that in the middle of Barnes & Noble the other day. But I tried not to really talk about my kids or Jay, especially obviously when he got sick and was diagnosed with colon cancer. So, um, you know, I just, I, I came up with an outline. I had written 400 additional pages, if you can believe that. And I handed it in and my editor said, oh, I can't read this whole thing. I said, well, I thought you're an editor. You know, can't you, <laughs> can't you help me decide like what's interesting and what's not? But you know, I did other interviews I wrote about. I did a very contentious interview with Bob Dole where I challenged him about nicotine. He said it wasn't addictive. And so we had kind of a bit of a tussle. And um, you know, in other parts of my life, I didn't talk that much about my college years. Um, because I just couldn't write about everything. I mean, it's, it's pretty long as it is. So I tried to make it, and I worked with someone, uh, Lucy Kalin. She collaborated with me. So I wrote most of it. She would help me. She would help me organize it. And then Adriana Fazio had written her thesis about me at Notre Dame. And she actually, uh, through a friend of a friend, she was very persistent. She got to me through a producer I'd worked with at 60 Minutes and asked if she could interview me. My assistant at the time said, you don't want to do that. I said, I'm so flattered that she's writing her whole college thesis about me. I can sit down with her for a half an hour. She came over to the apartment. I think she was really hungover because there was the Notre Dame big football game the <laughs> night before. And um, she interviewed me, and she was so cute and, you know, very nervous. And afterwards, I said, you, you know more about me than I know about me. Would you like to help me write my book? So I hired her right after she graduated from Notre Dame. To help That's me. amazing. Yeah. And I spoke to her on the phone. Yeah. She's delightful. So how long, I mean, can you say first word on the page to book in the bookstore how long that was? Probably about three years. Yeah. And I was very... I mean, no one wants to say they were grateful for COVID, obviously, but I think because of COVID, I had a lot of time where I wasn't going to an office. I wasn't really working. I was working, actually. I was covering COVID, and we were writing about it, and I was doing a ton of interviews, and I was collaborating with Time Magazine on some things. But, you know, I had a lot more time, and I think to have the discipline to get everything done. I'm a pretty scattered person. I'm kind of all over the place. But this made me really focus and get it done. And, and I was so grateful, Deborah, uh, for the internet because I could look at so many um, interviews. And then the NBC archives people were really terrific and helpful. We'd, you know, I sent them a lot of wine. And uh, <laughs> because they were, you know, they'd send me interviews that might not have been digitized. And that was super helpful. CBS, not as helpful. What a shock. Um, so, so that was that was really great. And I had I'm kind of a pack rat. I had saved all my speeches. I saved. I'm very sentimental, so I saved a lot of letters my mom and dad had written me. And I had a lot of letters I had written them because they 
they, my dad passed away in 2011 and my mom in 2014. And so I had those things to go through. So I had a wealth of material. And I have a pretty good memory as well. So let's talk about, so you're this girl with Moxie from Virginia. And going from your childhood to the career you had, I mean, I would say that so much of what we do is a lot of hard work and then a little bit of pixie dust oh, yeah. just dropped on top of it. Um, you had kind of an extraordinary path. Why don't you talk a little bit for people? They're going to read the book, but just set some highlights of that sure. transition. Sure. Well, it's no one is more surprised that I've had these opportunities than I am, honestly, because there are many, many people who have the skills, whatever skills I have. And you're right, I think some of it is serendipity and some of it is hard work and some of it is sort of um, really being focused. I really wanted a career. Um, and so real quickly, I'll give you the cliff notes. I grew up in Arlington, Virginia. I went to public school my whole life. My dad was a journalist, and then he went into PR. We never had a lot of money, but I was never wanting for anything. We were sort of a typical middle-class family on 40th Street. I had a really happy childhood. Uh, I'm the youngest of four kids, and so I think that actually determines a lot of has determined a lot of my personality. I'm super outgoing and friendly. And um, my mom was a housewife. She worked at Planned Parenthood, volunteered, and she also worked at Lord & Taylor in the gift department. Um, and I just had this really nice childhood. I grew up in the 60s and 70s. Uh, I was aware of sort of social turmoil, but not that aware. I was 11, you know, when Kennedy and Martin Luther King were shot and sort of at the height of the Vietnam War. So I was pretty insulated from a lot of that that those things um, I went to the University of Virginia my sisters went to Smith both went to Smith College which was one of the seven sisters and this was before girls were admitted to Ivy League schools I wanted to go to Smith I was rejected I wasn't even waitlisted it was very traumatic for me I felt like a loser um, and but I ended up going to UVA which I think was a much better choice for me um, in state and that was good because it didn't cost that much. And my I, my dad was very focused on education and said we could go wherever we wanted. And it was between Vanderbilt and UVA. And I liked them both, but I thought, gosh, UVA costs $1,700 a year. <laughs> if you can believe that back then, yeah. isn't that insane? And anyway, so um, my dad encouraged me during the summers to intern at different radio stations. I think he recognized that I was a decent writer early on, and I was a, um, a procrastinator, so I could write under deadline. I used to do my homework in front of the door before the bus came. And uh, so I worked at radio stations, and then I majored in American Studies at UVA, which required me to write a lot. And I ended up getting a job uh, at ABC News in Washington. It's a very funny story how I maneuvered myself into the newsroom. And from there, I went to CNN. And I was there when CNN first started in 1980. And then from CNN, I went to WTBJ and worked in local news in Miami. And then I worked in local news in Washington. Then Tim Russert saw me. I loved him. He's such a, such a loss. 
I would be really, it would be so fascinating to see how Tim would cover our current political. Um, we do, but I think he'd be, he'd find it challenging as well, honestly. Um, and then he fucked me out of local news to cover the Pentagon. And then the Today Show had replaced Jane Pauley with Deborah Norville. They thought Jane was too old because she was 39. <laughs> and uh, they replaced her with Deborah, who was beautiful and talented, but people resented her uh, because, you know, they love Jane. And as I said, people form these very familial relationships with people they spend time with every morning. And so this is when the luck comes in. I was you know, more sort of, I just, I, you know, Deborah was Miss Junior Miss. I would never be Miss Junior Miss. And they sort of saw me as this kind of plucky uh, reporter, dare I say perky. Did you think I was going to say perky? And I was lucky and I got the job. So it was, it was a combination of working really, really hard, to your point, Deborah, and being in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. And also, I think having the humility to learn something in every job I was at. I was never looking, looking and saying, what am I going to do next? I enjoyed every position I had, although I wanted to be on air. I wanted to be a reporter. Uh, and so I, the president of CNN, uh, I, he, he decided to give me a like, big break. So he said, Katie, you're going to go and in the morning you're going to say what the, white, uh, what the president is doing from the White House. I was like, oh, that's so exciting. <laughs> so I went and I was like, today the president is meeting with national security advisors and big new Brzezinski. I was awful. And I came back to CNN and the assignment editor said, Reese Schoenfeld called. He was the president of CNN. He said, he never wants to see you on the air again. <laughs> so I also think I had a lot, this kind of weird combination of self-confidence and uh, stupidity and thinking that if other people could do it, why couldn't I? But I was not sort of your prototypical reporter. You know, I'm sort of short and more acute than serious. And so I, I just kept on working. And I did think the Pentagon would give me a, a lot of gravitas, which I've decided is Latin for testicles. But, um, <laughs> you know... Uh, so I and I think that was really helpful because when I came to the Today Show, Brian Gumbel, I think he had respect for me because I knew what an you know an F-18 was versus an F-16A or an M1A1 tank, and I'd covered all these military stories, and I'm not sure he was that knowledgeable mm -hmm. about military issues. So, so would you say, and in, in that era that we had to work harder, do better, know more than men. It was a different time. There were fewer spots for women, yes. no, no matter where we were going. And, you know, I think there's this idea that women are competitive, but sometimes we're thrust into the, these very narrow, where there's just one slot available, and it, it can be a very different environment. So did you feel that you just had to be better? I mean, I felt like I had to do well. I, I always felt that I was just as competent as my male counterparts when I was covering a story, particularly in local news, um, and that I could cover the Pentagon as well as some of the men. Wolf Blitzer was covering the Pentagon at the time for, I think, the Jerusalem Post when I was there. And, um, you know, so, uh, yes, I do feel I had to work very hard, less internally at these networks, but more so I would, people would think I had credibility. 
you know, so I had to make sure I comported myself in a certain way. That's why I was Catherine Couric instead of Katie when I covered the right. Pentagon. And, um, but, you know, I think sometimes people forget, Deborah, that we are in a way with some time, you know, uh, years up and down between us. I think this doesn't make sense. But my sister was 10 years older than I, for example, and 10 years younger. But this generation of women, uh, I think we're the first en masse to really enter the working world. My, when I was growing up, no moms worked. Christine Hughes, was her mom was a doctor, but there were very few working mothers in my neighborhood, in my friend group. And so in many ways, we were the first wave of, I think, where so many women were entering the workforce in big numbers. And so that was challenging, I think. And, you know, there were a lot of men who, kind of crusty old men who wanted to get the broads out of broadcasting. And I always say that I, I got into TV news when harass was two words instead of one. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. So, so you know, it, it was very, it was a, I know that always takes a minute. That's a good line. To sink in. <laughs> yeah, we but, got it. <laughs> thank you. I'm always like one, two, three, and then people laugh. Um, but, but um, you know, I did, I did have to work hard. But I was willing to work hard, and I was happy to work hard. And that's one thing I tell people, there is no substitute for hard work, to work you know, late. And especially, I intentionally planned to be unattached throughout my 20s. You know, I had different boyfriends and different, I sort of had one in every port, every market. No, I don't, but every market, I would, you know, I, I would have a boyfriend, but I would be very um, transparent that I wasn't, I didn't want to be tied down, you know. And so I really, once I turned 30, it was like, oh, I better get going on this. But, um, you know, I had a lot of flexibility, a lot of time, and I would, every time I could, I would work and volunteer to work on weekends or cover stories or do more. And I think that's one thing that I always sound like I'm 90 when I say this, but a lot of young people, I don't think they realize you just have to put in the time. And I do believe Malcolm Gladwell was right when he says it takes 10,000 hours to become good at anything. Absolutely. And, you know, I wasn't very good at first, as you heard. I was so bad that they didn't want me on the air ever again. But, you know, I kept doing it, and I got better, and I got more comfortable and more confident. And it just takes doing something over and over again to be really good at it. So all my children sent me to a vocal coach. I had a Midwestern accent, which is flat. Everything's flat, and your mouth goes red, I guess. <laughs> and so her, her name was Mary Warren, and she got me to not move my mouth at all. And so I was very affected for a few years, so yeah. you didn't do that. No, it was terrible. Vocal coaches are good, but very tricky. You never did that. I did. Act, well, I went to a speech coach in Atlanta who basically just taught me to not talk from up here, to just kind of talk right. from more there. And, you know, when you're recording something, to kind of relax and actually stick your stomach out a little bit because then your voice is more in a lower register. By the way, I loved you and all my children. Oh, thank you, Katie. <laughs> so the first time I met Katie, you may not remember, it was before I knew Lorette, before you were all just a dream, none of you were here. <laughs> and I met you somewhere in New York and you were so sweet. You said something so nice to me. And I loved you from that day forward. You're, I, what did I say? Just something... <laughs> Nice. I don't know. Yeah. So uh, acknowledging, like, oh, I remember you, or it's nice to see you, or something. Yeah. It wasn't like life changing, but it was nice. <laughs> it's just, I'm sorry. Just nice. <laughs> Very nice. 
Um, so sexism, I'm going to tell a little story. When I was a young actress, I was doing a show, which was a very macho show, granted, called The A-Team. Oh, and I played, with Mr. T. Yes. And George Papard. Yes, and, and Dirk Benedict. Um, so I played, which was really against typecasting, the daughter and co-worker of a, a man who owned a tow truck company. So picture me in coveralls. But when I got into the set, I was so excited, I asked the director, I said, so um, are you going to use a boom or do I need to get wired for a mic? And he said, darling, <laughs> a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And he said it loudly in front of everybody. And I was so embarrassed. I mean, that was the kind of stuff, though, at yeah. that time. Because I thought, was that really a dumb question? I think it was a reasonable question. I think it was a smart question. <laughs> anyway, but that was the environment. Yeah. Right? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think things started to change as more and more women came in. But, you know, I know on, at the Today Show, it was a very boys' club environment, particularly when Bryant was there. You know, Bryant is an enormously talented broadcaster. I mean, I used to just marvel at how smooth he was and smart, how he could really do great interviews with people. But, you know, it was, it was a, he's, he's kind of a chauvinist pig, to be honest with you. And, and it was, it was hard. And the guys on the floor, the camera crews and the stage manager, and it was a very male-oriented environment. I remember one day he was calling a young publicist, uh, a name that was just really grossly inappropriate. And I said to her, and I heard it, and it was really hard, it was tricky, because I could have said to him, I, I sort of heard it, and people were laughing, and sort of heard it out of the, can you have a corner of your ear as well as yeah. I? But anyway, I said, I said to Alex, uh, my friend, I said, hey, you go into his office, and you tell him to never call you that again. And she did. And I think to, to equip women with the strength you know, I could have probably, now, it, it was tricky for me because, you know, your chemistry and how you, your interplay with your co-anchor is really an important part of that show and that job and many jobs on television. And it could have created a lot of problems. I mean, I had a very jocular relationship with Bryant, but if I had sort of come on like and said, what are you doing, cut it out, which probably I should have, but I was new and kind of and younger and everything. So she did. And uh, he, he never called her that again. Now, he didn't really talk to her ever again. <laughs> he didn't call her anything. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I worked at ABC Sports. Uh, I covered the Lake Placid Olympics. And I remember mm -hmm. that uh, they are the worst, the sports people were, because they really treated women. They really objectified every woman who was sort of in their universe. And um, But that was, again... Lake Placid, I guess, was 1980 or something. So that was very early on in my career. So talk about going to the Today Show, which was really an extraordinary coup, and you were there for 15 years. I, I mean, give us, a, what would you like to talk about, about that period in your life and what it meant to you? Well, it was obviously a thrill. I never in a million years, you know, this was, I was somebody who people never saw as anchor material. You know, I was kind of the scrappy street reporter. And so the idea that I would have a very celebrated position like that uh, 
was so crazy to me. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I remember Jay and I, they, they brought me to New York, and Jay and I were going to his sister Sally's graduation from the University of New Mexico. And we were, we were flying back to New York, and, or flying to New York, because we were living in Washington, D.C. And I said, why do you think they want to talk to me? You don't think they're offering me this job? And we're like, no. And they flew me all the way there. And I think they had decided at the last minute, this was when the ratings were kind of going down. Deborah and Brian didn't have the best chemistry, and people were still resenting Deborah for replacing Jane. Okay. And uh, so they, we, we didn't think that was going to happen, but they brought me there. And so I knew that they were kind of looking at me as uh, for a possible job in the future. And then when Deborah went on maternity leave, this is when they made the change, which was really, you know, in retrospect, really sort of tacky on their part. Um, and I felt bad for her. Uh, but I also knew that it wasn't working. Mm -hmm. And um, and I was also, you know, pretty excited to have that opportunity. So it was kind of, you know, I wasn't going to say no because I feel bad for Deborah. I'm not that nice. <laughs> and so when they gave me the job, it was it was like, it was just unbelievable. And really very, very exciting. And the job was wonderful because I got to see the world. I got to you know, interview important world leaders. I got to go to the White House. I went to the south of France. I went, you know, I covered Operation Desert Storm, which I interviewed. I did the first interview with Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf. I don't know if you young people remember any of this. Um, so it was just, I had a front row seat to history, and it was thrilling. And I think my personality was very well suited for that show because I could do hard news, having covered the Pentagon and working in having worked in local news all those years. But I also can be kind of funny and playful, and I'm pretty quick on my feet generally. So I think the skills that I brought to bear were very perfect. You know, made made me a perfect fit for that show in many ways. So as a woman, there's this work-life balance that we think about maybe more than many men, and you talk in your book about some incredible people and one kind of weird person Ugh. who have helped the you over the years. I had a, oh, I had a yeah. psycho nanny from hell. Yeah. Actually, Lori remembers her. Oh, my God. Oh, you've got to read the book. I mean, it's so, it's so crazy. But I think the moral of the story is trust your gut. When someone, like, asks you to hug her before she goes to bed, fire her. <laughs> I mean, what was wrong with me? That's the big question. <laughs> I think I was so overwhelmed. Jay was living in Washington. He was a lawyer for a firm called Williamson Conley, and it's a very prestigious firm, and he was about to make partners, so we had a long-distance relationship. I had this new job, overwhelming, a brand-new baby, and I just, you know, I, I needed help. And so I made these compromises and basically was working for the person who was taking care of my baby and uh, it was just it was it it was crazy crazy kinda it was a little fatal attraction -y. yeah it was yeah it's sort of a hand the hand that rocks the cradle meets fatal attraction we'll take a short break and be back with the ocean house author series here on WCRI
And we're back with the Ocean House Author Series on WCRI. Talk a little bit about doing a morning talk show. What time did you get up? What time did you leave the house? I mean, it's crazy. Well, this is my little secret, but, uh, you know, I think the people, when I first started, I was getting up at like 4.15, and then every year it would become 15 minutes later. So towards the end of my run, I was getting up at around 6. Oh. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Don't tell anybody. Yeah. I would get up, I'd wash my hair, I would brush in there. I did my homework the night before because they would give you a packet and they would tell you all the interviews. And if there was breaking news overnight, you'd have someone to brief you. And I'd basically run in with wet hair and they would be like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. They'd get me all done and I and, 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 and in the studio they'd be like, coming in today <laughs> and uh, I'd rush in and but I, I I think I'm I think that speaks to how I sort of a procrastinator my whole life I work really well I and I'm the kind of person when I should be getting ready an hour before I get ready a half hour before because I think I'm an adrenaline junkie I don't know if anybody has that problem in here but um, so everyone feel felt so bad for me but you shouldn't okay I don't feel bad for you <laughs> I'm over yeah. that. And it was great because if I had to go to events the night before, if I had to go to like a charity event, I'd always say, I got to get up super early. So I have to go. <laughs> it was a great excuse. Fabulous yeah. excuse. So talk about CBS. That was a big decision. And what was good about that and what was challenging about that? Yeah. Well, you know, I think my whole life, I wanted to be taken seriously. And I think as a woman and a certain personality type, I had to work very, very hard because I think people put you in boxes. You know, you can't have a sense of humor and be smart and be competent necessarily, or you can't be outgoing. You know, that's why I always felt like the perky thing was such a, was so diminishing of me because remember in Bull Durham when Susan Sarandon said, you know, baby ducks are cute. And I think Perky, I don't think Bob Costas, who's also diminutive, would ever be called Perky. And I think it's a it's a very kind of stealthy, sexist term. Um, so I think while I love the Today Show, 15 years in any job is a long time. And it started to get slightly repetitive. And, um, you know, I, I kind of was, was craving more serious news. And I had been in, uh, asked to come to 60 Minutes a few years prior to that, but I wasn't ready to leave the Today Show. And then Les Moonves, hello, came, I know, came calling and offered me this job. And, you know, I think my whole career I was very cognizant of how important it is to see women, you know, if you can't see her, you can't be her, to see women in certain positions that would help other women see they could do it too. And so when I got my job on the Today Show, I insisted that I had a 50-50 division of labor with Brian Gumbel. Now that was pretty ballsy for me at, at 34, insisting to the president of NBC News that I didn't get want to be relegated to fashion shows and cooking segments. And I had worked really hard covering the Pentagon and all sorts of uh, stories, and I didn't want to be put in sort of a female role or a traditionally female role at the time. And so um, I really, I really insisted upon that. So what was I talking about? CBS. Going oh to yeah. CBS. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. So I think. Sorry. It's like. Ee! 
But I, I think that, um, so when CBS had this, presented this opportunity, I thought, wow, this is really a chance for me to flex my journalism muscles to, I mean, to be taken seriously, to show that a woman could do a job like that with confidence and competence. And so I, I did it. But I think the problem, and I don't know if my friend Bob Peterson is here yet. He came with me from NBC. And I, I think the problem is CBS is the most traditional of all the networks. Uh, many people are lifers. They go there early and they spend their entire careers there. They do not really cotton to outsiders. And I think I was given the edict of making the news more accessible and less kind of voice of God, a little less kind of formal. And so I think they, many of them felt very threatened. And I brought five of my colleagues from NBC. And I think we had a weak president who really wasn't very, very strong because he was weak. And, uh, and, and he didn't, he didn't, you know, they, they invested all this money in me and they did a big campaign. And what I can't figure out is why they didn't support me more uh, from a management point of view and say to the people who were undermining me, hey, this is our person, get on the train, and if you're not with us, get a new job. But I, I had a lot of people, I think, as I said, undermining me who felt threatened and it just created, it, it, it created an environment where it was really hard for me. And, but I think it was also, I, I think I should have understood that making these big changes should happen incrementally and slowly. And I probably, even though I love Bob and all the people I brought over, probably should have just come by myself and kind of made changes slowly once I, you know, it was sort of every organization has that personality and their psychology. And I think I just didn't read the room very mm -hmm. well. But so you were there for a number of years. In, Five years. In a hostile environment. How did you deal with that toxicity? How did you... I cried like, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a funny story in my book uh, where I, you know, I mean, it was tough because not only was I facing a lot of criticism internally, and by the way, there were a lot of nice people at CBS, um, but I, I was facing not a lot of support internally. The press was just having a field day because I had such a powerful position on the Today Show, and then because I was not doing well, they all smelled blood in the water, and they're kind of like lemmings, like if one person starts doing something, they all kind of pile on, and, uh, you know, that was, that was really, really hard, and I remember being at the dinner table, because it was always important for me to have dinner with my girls, and we'd gotten rid of the psycho nanny from hell, and I had a great nanny uh, named Lori Beth, who I really feel... It helped me so much in raising my kids. She was really a co-parent for me. But I remember eating dinner, and I was like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Like, Ellie's 12, but Ellie's like 14, and Carrie's 10. And, like, we're just eating our pasta or whatever, and I start crying and blowing my nose in my napkin. And Carrie said, Mom, she's 10, mind you. Remember what Samantha says in Sex in the City? And I'm thinking, oh, my God, there is so much wrong with that. <laughs> I mean, stop now. She got, Samantha says, if I listened to what every bitch in New York City said about me, I'd never leave the house. <laughs> and I said, thanks, Carrie. So, isn't that funny? I was like, good Lord, my 10-year-old is watching Sex in the City. 
what? Uh, that was really bad. But anyway, so, you know, and I think I'm a pretty resilient person. I've had to be resilient. And uh, I had a lot of good, you know, I had my, my circle of, of people at CBS. And I think, I think when you're the first at anything, I mean, they said things about me they would never say today. Uh, you know, they criticized that I wore a white jacket after Labor Day. And I was like, <laughs> it, was, it was tropical weight wool and it was Armani, goddammit. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and they, they criticized how I held my hands when I was doing, when I was doing something. I mean, just, oh, and Nora Ephron, I mean, okay. This is awful because I know she's a great writer and know everyone loves her. But she wrote the bitchiest piece, trashing my makeup. And I was like, Nora Ephron, what the hell is wrong with you? But, you know, it, it became kind of blood sport. Right. You know, when someone, everybody sort of was, as my mom would say, was picking on me. And so, uh, but and so it was it was really hard. It was really hard. But having said that, I did, you know, I did some really important work there. I did a lot of good stories for 60 minutes. That was a real uh, real snake pit 60 minutes. Um, and I remember when I got a tour of 60 minutes, one of the producers said, "Now the mantra here." I'm like, "Yes." <laughs> he said the mantra here is someone else's success diminishes you someone else's Ooh. failure elevates you and Ooh. I was like what I said well why can't why aren't there a good you know enough good stories to go around but you know so that was just I think that cutthroat competitive environment they really encouraged that at 60 minutes um, but anyway, but I did some good stories for them nonetheless, and I, I did a really important interview with Sarah Palin that got a lot of traction. You're welcome. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was really important and very fair, uh, and everyone, even uh, her campaign, thought it was fair. Uh, and, and so I'm kind of proud that I hung in there, that, and my, my husband my current husband, hopefully my last husband, <laughs> said, uh, you know, said, I can't believe you, like, stayed. Why didn't, why didn't you just quit? And I said, I was never going to just quit. I had to see it through. And I think uh, I'm really proud that I did that. I'm really proud of some of the work I did as well. I'm wondering, and I'm going to take you back a little bit, that came after you had gone through the illness and the, the death of your husband, the mm -hmm. father of your children, um, and which you wrote about with great candor. Uh, what gave you the courage to go there in this book? We're going to play with that metaphor. Did you, and was it cathartic to write about it, or was it just draining to write about it? Can, can you talk a little bit about that? And then maybe uh, I'm wondering if you didn't survive the CBS thing as well as you did, having gone through something much more grave maybe. some years yeah, before. Maybe, that's 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 possible. You know, I was thinking it would have been really helpful. You know, I was a single mom. I was making these big career decisions. I think it would have been really helpful to have a partner, mm -hmm. and obviously Jay, or just somebody who could really help me think these things through and protect me yeah. and talk to me and maybe say, why don't you try this? Or, uh, you know, just encourage me or just give me a hug at night, honestly. Um, and uh, writing about Jay, I really uh, tried to protect his privacy when he was sick, and I never really, I didn't feel the story of his illness and death was mine to tell. 
Um, he wasn't a public figure, and I was, although he did some on-air work, uh, legal commentary. And um, I don't know if it was cathartic. I think it was important for my daughters, who were so little at the time. You know, Ellie was just five, and Carrie was one when Jay was diagnosed. And, and you know, I don't think they understood, obviously they shouldn't, what that period of time was like and how brave Jay was and just how terrifying it was. And I think they they really, I wanted them to, when Jay died at his funeral, I asked people to write letters to the girls because I wanted them to know, get to know their dad because they wouldn't be able to in real time, but at least retrospectively. And so, you know, it, I'm, I'm glad I wrote about it and, um, yeah, it was it was very tough. I cried a lot writing that. I bet you did. I cried a lot reading it and listening to it. It's this is an interesting thing to be able to do in memoir, and I'm singing your praises to the room. You write it in such a way that we are with you as it's playing out. We know somewhere in the recesses of our mind what the outcome is because it's true. Right. But you take us through the moments of hope, the going to the country house, the little things that happened along the way, and it's really masterfully done. Thank you. That I really appreciate that. I also, you know, I hope there, sadly, you know, a lot of people have to deal with this kind of heartache and this kind of loss and these kinds of terminal illness. And I hope that by sharing my experiences that it will be helpful to other people. For example, I write a lot about the fact that Jay and I never had a conversation about, you know, what would happen if he died. And I think we were so, I was so afraid, you know, almost if I spoke about it, it would happen or it would raise the possibility. And I was so, you know, taking on the role of the cheerleader. And I don't think, I, I, I wish I had known how to help Jay more. I wrote one line in the book, which I think is pretty profound, where I said I did everything I could to help Jay live. I wish I had done more to help him die. And I think it's just, it's really, really difficult to have that kind of conversation. And I think I would recommend if anybody is dealing with a terrible situation like this, that they go to a social worker or somebody to help kind of people navigate it. Because we were so young, it happened so fast. We, you know, it was just a very difficult and painful, painful time. And I've had a lot of people, widows, write me um, to tell me how helpful it was for them to read about my experience because I think it made them feel less alone. So talk a little bit about how that has been for your daughters to read that. Well, they called me after they read it and they were both crying. And I think they were just, it's very hard, you know, it's hard for them. It's hard growing up without a parent. And I don't think the world makes it super easy when you're not in a nuclear family. And, um, but the, I think they were very moved by the part about Jay, and I do feel like they, they got to know him better through my writing the book. You know, Ellie and I sat down, we have a big box of those aforementioned letters, and I think she was maybe 24, 25, and I said, do you want to go through some of these with me? And, you know, there were some from her little little first grade friends, you know, from from her school, and 
she just couldn't do it, honestly. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's still a process for right. both of them. And I wanted to say something about helping someone die. And in a way, they can only do what they're able to do. I had a very dear friend who died at 33 of liver cancer, leaving a four and a six-year-old. And I asked her a couple of times if she wanted me to help her write anything down, any stories. And she couldn't even talk about the concept. Yeah. Couldn't. She wasn't able. It's, I, I think you do, you know, now they have something called death doulas, which I think is really interesting. Mm. Um, and I think you do have to follow the lead of that person and not force them, to your point, Deborah, about your friend. Um, you know, I was, I was always hoping that I'd open a chest and there would be a letter to Ellie and Carrie that Jay had written or, uh, you know, that he had done some kind of little video for them. But we, you know, I, I, I think he just, it, it was just too hard for right. him. Right. I'm going to lighten it up a little. There, you did the oh, most. As we used to say on the Today Show, on a lighter note. <laughs> In time, you did a very brave and out there thing. This lady, for those of you who are too young to remember, had a colonoscopy on national television. Oh so it was. Talk about moxie. How did, how did you think of that? Well, I learned so much about colon cancer during the course of Jay's illness. And, of course, he was too young to have gotten a colonoscopy. Now you should get one starting at age 45. The American Cancer Society lowered the age, screening age to 45, which it always has been for, well, that had nothing to do with me, but thank you. <laughs> But, you know, it's been really actually really upsetting because a lot of young people under the age of 50 are being diagnosed with colorectal cancer and breast cancer, and they're trying to figure out why. But anyway, I had gotten such a crash course in colon cancer, and here I had this platform, the Today Show, and I thought it could, I could turn this into a critically important teachable moment. So nobody really knew how to say colonoscopy, much less what it involved. So I thought I was too young to get, you know, get one actually prescribed by a doctor, but I thought I will just take people through the process. And I'm really glad I did because colonoscopies went up 20% after I did it, and that translates to a lot of colon cancers detected at earliest earlier stages when they can be successfully treated. And so, you know, I was happy to do it. I feel like I started a bad trend, though, because I feel like everyone's talking about their, their medical issues on television now. I think Matt now even did, like, a prostate cancer test, and I was like, ew. But I did tell my producers I'm drawing the line at a pap smear. That's it. <laughs> so quickly, yeah. I'm gonna we're gonna we're going to I'm gonna say it again, we're gonna go there and then I have one more thing to ask you and then we're going to bring it to the audience. You worked with Matt Lauer, I worked with Harvey Weinstein. When the Harvey thing broke, I had no idea. And so there were a lot of people in the movie business saying everybody knew and I thought well I could be dumber than the average person which is possible but I think people who have secrets of that magnitude tend to compartmentalize and tend to segment how they reveal aspects of themselves. I couldn't agree more. Yes. I think Matt was extremely discreet if you can say it that way. Um, I think his behavior was hidden obviously from the people with whom he worked. Uh, you know it was that was a very traumatic time for me because I was really upset and I also think that you know we were talking about early in my career these 
not necessarily, you know, I think we all were educated a lot during Me Too about power, about things being more about power and exploiting people and having a position that exploits people, especially those who are underlings and work for you. Um, and it, it was it was really upsetting. I mean, I knew Matt, I knew sort of the tabloids had said Matt wasn't very happily married. He never discussed his marriage with me. I never discussed really personal things with him. Once when a guy dumped me on email, I did go into his office because I was really upset before the show and I cried. And that was like the most intimate exchange we ever had about our personal lives. Um, and so it was it was really it was really upsetting and disappointing. And Matt, you know, what is Walt Whitman said, we are all multitudes or what is or we contain multitudes. Right. And I think Matt has a lot of really wonderful qualities and he had really some he exercised terrible judgment and took advantage of young women and um, but what I was going to say is, you know, all through the 90s, there were all kinds of shenanigans that you would hear, you know, were happening. I mean, I'm sort of a very straight arrow. I believe in fidelity. You know, I, I, I just would never cheat on my husband. And so I would hear these things and I'd say, oh, I hope not. Or gosh, that's yucky. But I wouldn't be like, um, excuse me, are you sleeping with this person? <laughs> you know, you just, you didn't really, it, it, you kind of back then you sort of thought it's none of your business right and nobody ever came to me saying I feel uncomfortable or Matt has done this and so um, you know it kind of bugs me when people are like well you know didn't you know and I still get weird comments on Instagram about it once in a while and I'm like why if uh, you know I am not his mother or his babysitter why when men uh, are are you know, behave badly, why suddenly is a woman in their ecosystem blamed for said behavior? It just it's kind of extraordinary, no, isn't it? It, it makes no <laughs> sense at all. So, but I, I, you know, listen, it's sad to me. Matt lost everything uh, as a result of his behavior. I think a lot of men were punished retroactively for things they had done in the past. And I have no relationship with him today. And it's, it's, it's sad, but I also feel terrible because I know for a fact, and I interviewed a few for this book, that he did significant damage to some young women. And, um, and that, that makes me upset as well. One of the things I want to close our portion on before you all get to ask things, I think you really are an example of what a human being, I'm going to say a woman, but a human being can really do with a life and a career. You have deftly navigated one step after the next with its ups and downs. And now you're navigating in a very interesting way. The whole social media, you, you are nimble and you are vibrant and you're staying current. So how have you done that? How have you gone from, you know, all these different things to, to work in a new medium now? I think I've always been aware. In fact, when I gave a commencement address, I think it was my fir very first one at Lehigh, I talked to my dad and he sort of helped me write it. And I asked him for advice and what he would tell these graduates. And he did talk about always be aware of what's happening around you, how how you know changes that are underfoot and I have always been very cognizant of sort of these trends 
And, you know, when I started at the Today Show, and really, for that matter, in TV news, it was 1979. And the iPhone wasn't invented until 2008. So when I, at the height of my career, if you wanted to know what was going on in the world, you picked up the paper from your front steps, you turned on NPR, perhaps your local station, in our case, it was WMAL that my parents played on our kitchen table, and, or you flipped on the TV. And now there is just this, I mean, array of choices. You have information bombarding you 24-7. And one of the reasons I went to Yahoo is I thought a digital platform that could really transform journalism mm -hmm. was the way to go, but they just didn't have it in their DNA. And so I think that even when I did a talk show at two or three in the afternoon, I thought, who's home? There are not that many people who are home watching a daytime talk show. And usually it's people, stay at home moms sometimes, who want a break and they don't want to talk about some of the issues I really cared about. They wanted to do Red Book's Hottest Husbands and that made me want to slit my wrist. And so I thought, so I went to Yahoo and I just, I think, you know, even then I was saying, I, I felt like I was riding on the back of a dinosaur. I just knew linear television viewing was going to start declining as all these other options became available. And sure enough, that's what's happened. And it's really actually, I mean, we, won't, we don't have to get into all of this, but just, you know, all these outlets, this is why there's so much disinformation. This is why, you know, we have alternative truth in this country. And that's also, uh, you know, the cable, the, bi uh, the, the bifurcation of cable news along political ideologies. And, you know, we don't have this common understanding, this, this communal experience of knowing what the truth is and we all create our own ecosystem of what my friend says is affirmation as much as information. So I think it's resulted in a lot of really dangerous things for our country. But I have thought I want to be you have to meet people where they are. You have to produce content that people can, you know, uh, um, take in in various ways. You were saying you listen to my book. A lot of people listen to it. A lot of people read it. People are listening to podcasts. They're listen, you know, they're reading newsletters. Hopefully, mine. Wake up call. Sign up for it. <laughs> um, you know, so they're getting information on Facebook through all these different means. And I realized if I wanted to stay relevant and keep doing what I was doing, I had to change. Plus, I had such huge jobs in television news. It's really hard to go back and like anchor the five o'clock hour on a cable network for right. me. You know, right. it's just sort of hard. And, and also there's honestly a great new generation of journalists coming up and I'm a little long in the tooth at this point. <laughs> We'll take a short break and be back with the Ocean House Author Series here on WCRI. And we're back with the Ocean House Author Series on WCRI. I know you all have questions, so raise your hands and wait for a mic to come around so you can hear it on the radio. I just have two questions. Um, one for both of you. With Harvey Weinstein and Matt Lauer and the Me, the Me Too movement, two positives and negatives of that movement, because you talked about the retrospective punishment. 
um, and you being unaware, just the two positives and negatives of that movement. And then also um, your relationship with your mom. You talk about your dad talking about being key on education and helping you with your um, commencement speech. What was your mom's influence in your life? One of the things I would say, uh, we live in the United States of America where we have due process of law and we have a system where someone is maybe arrested, but then, then there's a trial before they're guilty. So I think in many ways in our culture today, and I'm not just talking about Me Too men, but I think Me Too became a, a, a huge groundswell of people piling on. Of, uh, and maybe some people are guilty and maybe they're not guilty. I'm not questioning his guilt and I'm not condoning his behavior. What he did was wrong. But I think in the entire movement, um, there was glomming on, I think. So there's that. That was a negative about it. I think a positive is what we were talking about earlier. I think we've learned that we can speak up more. I think it is very hard to, there are a lot of people who say, well, why didn't she say anything? Why did she let that happen? Why did she go back? And there's, you know, I mean, what is it, Stockholm Syndrome or whatever the syndromes are by which a person can fall under the influence of another person or think they have to do something they don't want to do. I'll tell one little story. I had an agent called uh, Scott Harris who was very tough. And I was doing a movie up in British Columbia. And he called me one day. And this is the late 80s. He said two things. One, Warren Beatty called you. Two, I advise you not to call him back. Now, Warren Beatty was very handsome, if, if you don't remember him. But my agent was very honorably letting me know this was not really a work haul. He was doing his duty to tell me the call came in, but he was letting me know what it was about. I didn't call him back, but um, I sometimes wonder where those young women's agents were, protecting them a little bit. So I've said enough. I would say, sort of to elaborate on what Deborah said, that some people, uh, the offenses were really serious, and I think everyone got tarred with the same brush. And um, I, I think that not everyone behaved like Harvey Weinstein and that some people did not have due process. And I think, you know, whether or not where a fair redemption is possible for some of these people. Um, but I do feel like it kind of got, it was a, a frenzied environment. And if someone said the wrong thing, I mean, Tom Brokaw was accused by someone of doing something untoward. And it just, it, it just wasn't right. And um, so, but I also think that structures are now in place HR, human resources, I think, used to be there to protect the powerful in a company. And now I think they're there to protect the less powerful. And they take complaints much more seriously. My mom was an incredibly important influence in my life, fiercely loyal, wonderful, our cheerleader, um, and and really is so responsible for who I am. So I, I, I'm extremely, I was extremely close to both of my parents. And love them very much and miss them every day. Hi, Katie. Hi. Um, I was wondering, I love Barbara Walters, and I was wondering if you feel she was a great influence in your life. You know, I, I love Barbara Walters, too. Um, she was tough as nails and kind of singular in her pursuit of big stories. Uh, she was sort of the queen bee. And um, yeah, you know, I think she was a hugely important role model. When she started on the Today Show, she couldn't ask a question until the men had asked three. She could <laughs> ask one. And she put, I mean, talk about putting up with a lot of garbage. 
She really did. And so, um, yes, I admire her, her greatly. I do think she had to sacrifice a lot uh, for her career. And I think back then it was really hard to have that elusive work-life balance. And I think maybe she had some regrets about that. Hi, Katie. Hi. You really have had a front row seat at the threshold of history. And I'm curious to know, of all the world-renowned people that you have met, which woman did you admire most and why? And what man did you admire most and why? Oh, that's so hard. Uh, <laughs> sure. Gosh, um, I really admired Madeleine Albright. I got an opportunity to interview her on several occasions. I thought she was wonderful. She had an exhibit of all her brooches at a museum in New York, and she gave me a tour. She was just wonderful. She was so lovely, and I was on the board of the Aspen Institute with Madeline, just universally loved and admired. So I would say Madeline was one. I had the opportunity to meet Princess Diana at a lunch. And she sat next to me and complimented my lipstick. <laughs> Take that, Nora Ephron. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I said to her, oh, you must be so exhausted. You know, she was on this US tour. You must be so tired of you know, shaking everyone's hands. You must be so excited to go home. And she said, yes, but I'm going home to an empty house. And I mm. thought that was so sad. And there was just this melancholy about her. And she was obviously going through a very hard time. Um, but that was sort of a thrill to be able to actually meet the human behind the, all the coverage. Um, and I really admire Hillary Clinton. I think she is one of the smartest people I've ever met. Her knowledge of policy is second to none. I think she's smarter than her husband. And, um, and I, I, really, I really admire her intelligence, her just raw intelligence. And in terms of men, I mean, I, I've met so many important, interesting men. I think my favorite interview was Herman Woke, who wrote Winds of War, because he was just so charming and fun. And my least favorite was, Mah uh, was Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and uh, the, the really scary uh, president of Iran and the president of Syria. Um, and Yasser Arafat was really scary, too. Um, but, uh, you know, all the presidents I've interviewed, I mean, anyone who has that job and that enormous responsibility, whatever their political background is, I really, uh, generally, generally, I really admire them. Thank you so much. Yeah. Over here. Hi, Katie. So Hi. I have a quick comment and then a question. Um, following along the lines of the theme going there, we all know that the upcoming political cycle is going to be one none of us want to experience, but we're going to have to go through. And so I would suggest that as we all need serious journalists to stay with us in the next couple of months and going into the presidential cycle. So if you're thinking along those lines at all, I would encourage you to please stay with us because we need serious voices in what's coming ahead. Don't go anywhere. That's right. I'm trying. I do a lot of interviews on, on my Instagram, and they are also um, in my newsletter. Uh, but it's very hard. I have a lot of sympathy for journalists today because if your goal is to seek truth, um, you're automatically considered biased if the truth doesn't align with somebody's own truth. Um, and I would encourage you all to really be critical thinkers, to get your news from a variety of sources, to question what you're being told um, on certain networks that have really strong agendas in either direction, and, and really try 
to exercise your critical thinking skills. It's really, really important. Thank you. So on a lighter note, I want to know what you, I want to know what you think of the morning show, and does it seem a little familiar? <laughs> um, you know, I guess I've gotten that question before. Uh, the morning show on on Apple. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's very soapy. I think some of the stuff about Matt seems eerily familiar. You know, I hadn't been at the Today Show for gosh, uh, eleven years when Matt left. So, um, but sort of how he was really beloved, but also some of his behavior, questionable behavior, I thought they actually captured that pretty well. Some of the other stuff seems a little over the top, but still quite interesting. And people, I don't know, some people think Jennifer Aniston is me. I don't think she is. I'd like, I'd like to look like her in a pair of jeans, though, really. Hi, Katie. Hi. As a grandmother of teenagers and young like 11 year olds. My concern is how do, how do we approach and how do we tell them that I grew up in a generation and what you heard on TV and what you saw was absolute 100%. I'm concerned now that where do they go to get the truth? How do I, how do I help guide them to know that you can't believe everything you hear from people sitting behind a microphone on a TV um, one way or the other, however you, you feel. I'm just so concerned that they don't have the right tool to figure it out. Well, I think media literacy is really important, so I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's important to emphasize that a lot of things that they see on television news is opinion, and it's what was once considered commentary, and it's not necessarily straight news. I would encourage them to, if they're, well, gosh, NPR, I think, is a pretty good source. I think they're very uh, even-handed. I think the BBC and The Economist are really good sources. I like The Economist because it's, it's, it's a little right of center, but I feel like it's dispassionate because it's not kind of too American. Um, and I would just say you really need to, to consider the source. And when you're looking things up, and you need to, or if you're seeing something on Twitter, you need to understand where it's coming from and the agenda that someone might have. And I still think newspapers, although some people think the New York Times is too left-leaning now, but I, I still think you can get a lot of good, important information from newspapers like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and straight news like the NBC Nightly News, ABC News. The problem is those are very, I can tell you because I did it, very shallow because they, they're 22 minutes. I think PBS NewsHour is a good place I was going to say go. Um, it's one hour, and they really go through world news in the one hour. I, I highly recommend yeah, that. So, but I think also watch it with them and ask them questions and say, you know, this person. And I would stay away from some super opinionated news just because so much of that is just patently false. I'm not going to name you. No. I think we have time for two more questions. Hi, Katie. I remember meeting you at the Katie Show in the audience. You were great. You were asking if everybody was from New Jersey. Nothing against New Jersey. I love New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was thinking, okay, if I wrote a memoir, I'd have to decide how much truth to tell about people and how much to hold back. So how did you decide about going there and then going there there? 
about people. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think I try to. Somebody told me this book was very self-aware. So I tried to be very reflective mm -hmm. and self-critical when I mm -hmm. thought I deserved it. And um, I think as a result, there were, I, and I, I basically told from my, my perspective what it mm -hmm. felt like to, mm -hmm. to be where I sat and mm -hmm. what people, how people acted around me. Um, and my husband just said, you, you really, if you're writing this book, you have to be honest. And I wasn't interested in writing sort of about my greatest hits or then I did this and then I did a colonoscopy. I really wanted to give an overall view of, of, of my life, my flaws, my things I think I did well, and people who I thought I was not treated well by. Um, you know, Adriana said, like, if I should say something to people like, if you didn't want to read about about doing bad things, you shouldn't have done bad things. You know, and I just I just was super super honest about it, and I think I I wanted to I I had to be careful to balance that fine line between being transparent and being accurate about my own personal experiences and feeling like I was trying to settle scores. You know. Yeah. One more question. This is Meg Moore. You We're so glad you're here. Overcame issues such as sexism and gender inequality in the workplace. I'm curious if you can talk about your experience of writing those narratives, how you chose what details to include, and how it feels to now have those narratives visible in the public eye. So that's an excellent question. Thank you. Um, you know, again, I, I, I mean, there are stories that I didn't include that I thought were, you know, too mean or unkind and uh, and so I was careful about that. And I feel really good about everything I talked about. Uh, I talked about a failed relationship with somebody who I, I wanted people to know that they need to be aware that what, sort of what is narcissistic behavior in a relationship, which I wasn't familiar with, which I think will be helpful, like what is love bombing and why, you know, narcissists go from idealization to devaluation, devaluation to disposal. And so everything I talked about, I was hoping would be somehow instructive for people. And, you know, I put it out in the world because it was my truth. And I feel really comfortable with everything I wrote. And I really love my book. And sometimes I reread it. <laughs> well, thank you, Katie. Thank you all for coming. And Deborah, thank you so much oh for pleasure. having me. Thank you for joining us for this special broadcast of the Ocean House Author Series with Deborah Goodrich Royce. Please tune in each month as we'll bring you a new Ocean House Author Series highlighting nationally best selling and award winning authors in a salon style conversation. Hosted by Ocean House owner, actress, and best-selling author, Deborah Goodrich-Royce. WCRI is pleased to be partnering with the Ocean House to bring you this ongoing series highlighting the best and the brightest of the literary world. Thank you once again for joining us. And in the words of Margaret Atwood, in the end, we all become stories.